Well, good morning. Welcome to Sojourn. Glad that ended quickly. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to the book of Hebrews. Here at Sojourn, we say that one of our priorities is the Bible, that it is God's inspired and authoritative word. We are to sit underneath it, submitting our lives to it, and so it is to inform and, and instruct all that we do as a church. And so as a church gather together, we open it up each week, gathering around the word of God to hear from him. So if you have a Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 2. We continue our, our sermon series through the book of Hebrews, and we're in Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, hear the word of the Lord. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet." And now in putting, putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Now at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we want to join the prayers of saints of old and say and ask that you would comfort the afflicted. You are the one who doesn't break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering flax, who offers out to those who are weary rest. And we pray for them, pray for us if we are afflicted to come to you to, for comfort. But we also want to pray the opposite, that you'd afflict the comfortable in all the right ways. Because we're full of self-righteousness and self-sufficiency, and we need to be afflicted in that comfort if we're there. Father, we know your word's sufficient for this, and so we ask that you would use it to work in our lives. For the sake of your name and your glory, amen. The Christian's instincts of trust and worship, one author says, are stimulated very powerfully by the knowledge of the greatness of God. The instincts of trust and worship are stimulated by the knowledge of the greatness of God. And the author of Hebrews, working in line with that quotation, has helped us in stimulating trust and worship to God by giving us this exalted, great view of Jesus. He is trying to reveal to us the greatness of Jesus. That's kind of the main theme that runs through the book of Hebrews from the start to the end, we want to see the greatness of God, and that's what he's been showing us from the starting gates. Last week, we looked at how Jesus, as he starts plunging into how Jesus is greater than angels, which maybe, once again, is not an argument that most of us need, but we do need to see the greatness of Jesus. And so he's made this argument, Jesus is greater than angels because of the uniqueness of who he is as the Son of God, uniquely the Son of God, and because of his exalted and eternal rule over all. Now, the original readers of the book of Hebrews lived in a tumultuous time, and those who lived in this tumultuous time, they faced all sorts of persecution, as we'll see later in the book, perhaps being sawn in two, threatened on every side, struggling from poverty, persecution all around them, evil seems to be on the rise. They had all this, 
stuff around them in the time, and they would have needed something to stimulate trust in God. They would have needed something to stimulate worship of the one true king. They would have needed a view of the greatness of God. And so the author of Hebrews, as he's carried along by the Spirit, gives this needed knowledge of God's greatness. They needed stimulation like they needed air to stimulate breathing, desperate for it, and us too. In Acts chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, it's going to serve as this bridge. We've seen Jesus' superiority over angels based on his uniqueness as the Son, based on his eternal reigning. But now we're going to move into a little bit more of the incarnation, Jesus' earthly ministry. And 5 through 9 in chapter 2 serves as a bridge to get us from the exalted reign and eternal rule of Jesus to his ministry on the earth. And so we read in verse 5, it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. The author seems to be once again calling out the angels. Like he is just putting them on notice. I'm comparing you to Jesus. This is not a problem, I'm guessing, to the angels. I don't think they're going to hold a grudge and, and get the author of Hebrews up in heaven and be like, why are you saying all this stuff about us and trying to make us look bad in front of Jesus? The whole point of the angels was to point to the living God anyway, and so I'm sure they're not jealous about what's going on here. They too were probably along with this author saying, yes, let's look at how Jesus is so much greater than us. Let's join in that. If we can help people see that, we want to help people see that. And so here we are looking again at how Jesus is greater than the angels. And he says that it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come. This world to come is, is what the, the Old Testament pointed to. It's what the prophets prophesied about. It's what they were saying, promises about. There's something coming. We're looking forward to something in the future. It is a world to come. It is an age of fulfillment of all the things that God has promised. It's it's an age where there's a new exodus, greater than the old exodus, where God had pulled the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt into freedom and into a promised land. There's a new exodus promise where you're going to be pulled from a greater enemy, Satan and sin and death, and you're going to have a new freedom for Christ. You're going to be able to live for God. You're going to have the law not written on tablets of stone, but written on your hearts because you're going to have a new heart that God is going to give you and put inside of you as he dwells inside you. You're going to have a new David that's in front of you, one that's going to sit on the throne and reign and rule perfectly and forever, and you're going to have forgiveness of your sins. And this world to come was inaugurated, was started, was begun by Jesus. In his coming and his taking on flesh, the world to come was the reality. And so one commentator says it this way, by his life, death, and resurrection... He has performed all that was needful for the redemption of fallen man and his world. In him, all the promises of God received their affirmation. The miraculous signs and spiritual gifts, which the book of Hebrews spoke of earlier, accompanied the preaching of the gospel and corroborated its truth as themselves evidence that the messianic age is already here. The world to come that was subjected to Jesus is the world that we are now living in. This is it, the eternal Son of God, who is both distinct and equal to the Father, entered into time, space, history, adding to his deity with humanity, adding humanity to his deity, and in his coming, a new age has dawned that God has put in subjection to him from now and to the end, not to the angels, but to the Son, and now all are subject to him, whether they see it or not. He is judge and savior. You must come to him or you do not come at all. Or another way of saying it is that you got to fall on the rock or the rock's going to fall on you. Because everything is in subjection to him. That means in this new era 
that we actually have real salvation that we can offer out to people, not some future salvation, although there is some futuristic aspects to it. We can say you can be saved now. You can come and receive Christ now. Have forgiveness of your sins right now. Live under his reign and rule in his kingdom now. Those are freely offered in Jesus' name. There is salvation and those things in no other name and in no one else. No angel can claim any of those things. And so Jesus ushers in this new era of salvation to all who would come to him and believe in him. And it's available to them right now. Angels, on the other hand, they, they minister in the world. They work for the, the elect, for the people who are going to come to know God, but not as Lord. They work and minister as servants. Lord is reserved for the Son. And so it says and continues in verse 6, it has been testified somewhere. I like this. This is how I do Bible reference to it. It's in there somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower, little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. So this is a quote from Psalm 8. We can go back and actually figure out where it's at. This is Psalm 8, where the psalmist is awed by God. He is in wonder at the greatness of God who would create the heavens. You remember the start of it. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is what he says of his God. It's almost as if he went out on this clear night. And you could do this in Oklahoma, especially around here. There's a lot of rural areas where there's not much light uh, getting into the sky. You could see, you can look up on a clear night and see millions of stars. You can't even count them. They're innumerable amount of stars. As if this psalmist went out on a night like that, started looking up into the heavens and saying, God, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. Look what you have made. And in his amazement, he starts to consider himself. What is man? that you are mindful of him. Now the psalmists, it seems, do this often enough. If you look through the book of Psalms, they start to consider the creation of God, consider who God is, what he has done, and then they look at themselves in kind of a, a weak comparison in light of that. Saints of old have done this. John Newton was known for going out into the woods, and, and so was uh, Jonathan Edwards or, or Charles Spurgeon. You could go through a list of saints that would just go out, walk in God's creation, and start to wonder at all the things that he has made, and then look at themselves in humility. It's good practice for us, too, to consider creation, to prompt us to humble reflection of who we are in light of the greatness and magnitude of God and how majestic He is. And in light of that greatness, the psalmist in Psalm 8 asks a really good question. What is man that you are mindful of him? Now, what's amazingly implied in that psalm is that God actually is mindful of man. He is mindful of us. We're just a speck on this universe, and yet God is mindful. What does it mean that you are mindful of him? He does care for him. He has placed him in a place of dignity. Now, as, as humanity, as, as a human, we live on this like slightly, this is what I'm told in science, slightly tilted on its axis orb, right? It's a, it's a big round ball that we live on, slightly tilted on its axis, and it actually spins, and then it spins around this huge ball of fire, and this is just one of the things that is going on in this immediate galaxy that we see going on. And in, 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 if we go out at night, we see all these other stars and planets and other things that are supposedly in this galaxy or maybe other galaxies. And in light of all that, we occupy such a tiny little speck on this globe. And yet it says of us that God is mindful of us, that he cares for us. One person, so seemingly insignificant, and yet it's without doubt as we went through the creation story that the crown of all creation is not the heavens. It's man. 
As God thunders in creation, in the narrative, he says, let us, he's thundering to his heavenly host, let us make man in our image. And so God created them, male and female, he created them. In the overflow of his goodness, of his grace, of his majesty, he makes man. And it's by no doubt that he made man as the crown of his creation, the jewel of his creation, because he says of male and female, they're image bearers. They will bear our image. Man is unique in all creation in that man alone resembles God. And so Psalm 8 reminds us that man has this place of dignity, even though seemingly insignificant, that they are made to resemble God, be like God. We laugh, we sing, we cry. We have all the, those are like God. We could go on and on with that. But being an image bearer isn't just about being like God, resembling God. We're also to represent God. You need to resemble and represent. Both of those make up the definition of what it means to be an image bearer. And he turns a little bit more precisely to the second part of that definition of an image bearer in verse 8. He says, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And so it seems as if Psalm 8 brings into view the intent, the purpose that God created image bearers to both resemble him and represent him on this earth. And he says, while lower than the angels, man is crowned with glory and honor and everything is in subjection. In other words, man was to represent and reflect God's good and gracious rule on the earth. They were to be like, in a sense, little kings holding dominion over the things that God had created. All over created order, God put man in charge of it. And so we think about that, what a gracious and glorious honor that God has bestowed upon men, that we would reflect him, that we could resemble him in our personhood, but also be able to reign and rule in kind of the, the way he would want us to, to reflect his goodness, his grace, his reign, his rule on the earth over his creation. But it doesn't take long, as you know. It doesn't take long for man to distort this image bearing when a snake enters in the garden, speaks a lie to man and woman, and they fall, failing to perfectly resemble, failing to perfectly represent God's good and gracious character in their lives. And since the fall, all people have perverted the representation and dominion intended by God for man to have. So he says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And what do we see in this subduing? You're supposed to multiply? We see all sorts of problems with that. Do you remember the story of the Nephilim? I don't know if we need to go into that here. It was weird and, and really sinful. Right? It, was, it went off really quickly in just multiplication. Or you see the Tower of Babel. Multiply and fill the earth. And they're saying, no, let's, let's centralize things. Let's, let's get all of our power together and let's build a tower to the heavens. We're going against the command that God had given us as the intent for our design as, as human beings. He says, hold dominion over all created order. And what happens early on? Early on, people switch from worshiping the creator to the created. Abraham is in the line of people that are worshiping created things and not the creator. So now, as people under the fall, we are all holding dominion wrongly. Right? We are either heavy-handed in our dominion, or we're completely passive, or somewhere in between, but never fully representing God's good and gracious rule as we are meant to. And so what Psalm 8 is poetically expounding is God's original and purpose for image bearers, but it reminds us that we have distorted this with sin. And so 
from the exile in the garden until now, man hasn't lived up according to God's good design. All have followed in the footsteps of Adam, failing to resemble and represent God as God had intended for us. That is, all except one. One who Hebrews calls the heir of all things. Through whom all things were created. The exact imprint of the nature of God, the radiance of His glory, the one who upholds the universe by the word of His power. He took on flesh and His favorite name for Himself was Son of Man. Jesus was made for a little while lower than the angels, taking on flesh, adding humanity to His deity. And He is the ultimate and ideal Psalm 8 man. He is the one who comes and perfectly fulfills and shows this is what man was supposed to be. He is perfectly fulfilling God's original design, resembling God perfectly as the exact imprint of his nature, the radiance of his glory, perfectly representing his good and gracious rule on this earth. As the second Adam, Jesus came not just to be an example, though, of what man was supposed to be, but also to restore man back to that image which they lost in sin. And so how does this show that Jesus is superior to angels? Because it's clearly the context in the book of Hebrews. That he is now arguing that Jesus is greater than the angels. How does this show us that he is superior since for a little while he was made lower than the angels? Well, from eternity past, we know that Jesus was fully God. There wasn't a time when he was not, and there wasn't a time when he was not God. He was perfectly and always eternally reigning as God, with the Father, with the Spirit, three in one, from eternity past to eternity future. And so Jesus, as God, is infinitely worthy of praise, infinitely worthy of honor, highly exalted, not contingent upon anything, not needing breath, water, food, not needing people, not needing love. He has all that he needs within the Godhead. And in that... We know that we can't say any of those things or any of those things about angels. They're contingent. They're created, not creators. They're not eternal. God created them and they are created beings and they are not to be worshipped where those things cannot be said about Jesus. And so for Jesus to be made lower than the angels in any capacity meant that Jesus would have had to willingly descend to do so. He made those angels, and he made them to worship him. And so to place himself lower means that he has to take action to do something. And this is what John says. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus' descending from heaven is the greatest descent on any levels, greatest in many levels, the greatest descent because of his eternal and exalted place that he had. God eternal, infinitely worthy, comes down. He stoops lower than any could because he was higher than anybody could possibly be. And he stoops down to being born in human weakness. And he wasn't forced into this. He wasn't tricked. It wasn't his father saying like, well, they messed things up. Will you, I get, can you please go? He wasn't forced into this. He willingly does this. He willingly stoops down, goes down, becoming lower than the angels because he loves this creation. Because it was all made through him and for him and he wants to restore it and redeem it because that's what he's like. And so he stoops down in his love for humanity. He willingly goes after them, entering in by becoming one of them. Broken humanity. 
He enters into this to restore. In his willingness to be made low, we see his greatness. Jesus is the ultimate Psalm 8 man, perfectly upholding the dignity of man and perfectly resembling and representing God's gracious rule by coming down to us. And as such, what does Jesus' rule look like? The focus moves from this man who comes down crowned with glory and honor, but then what does it say in verse 8? That everything was put in subjection under his feet. Everything. And now putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. Nothing. Nothing outside of the control of Jesus. Jesus, as the Lord, as the kind of the ancient confession affirms, he is Lord. He is supreme over all. He is absolutely in control of all things. He is the perfect ruler. The one who is doing exactly what God had intended for man, but he is doing it perfectly, and he's doing it over all as God over all. Jesus proclaimed clearly in his great commission to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I have it. It is mine. And he, prays, he raises and lowers kings. Without him, it says, not one hair will turn white or black. There is nothing outside of his control. While on earth, Jesus displays this so clearly, does he not? He heals diseases. Not out of his control. He says, be done with that. Even from a distance, he can say, they're well, and they're well. He casts out demon spirits. <laughs> they don't hold sway over Jesus. He commands them, and they do what he says every time without fail. He speaks to nature. Be still to the storm. Walks upon the water. He reigns and rules over these things. This isn't hard for him to do. He speaks to death. He says, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus gets up because death obeys the voice of Jesus. He even affirms to Peter in Gethsemane, as Peter strikes the ear, he says, hey, I don't need your help. Everything is in subjection to me. I could call on troops of angels if I wanted to, because I command them. It's implied, right? I am over them. I reign and rule over all. I can command them to come and do whatever I need them to do, which means that our mess, whatever it consists of in our lives, is not outside God's control either, no matter what it is. Everything, nothing is outside of his control. And so Jesus' incarnation, his taking on flesh, his, his death, his resurrection, inaugurated the supreme and reign and rule over all. And yet, we finish verse 8, nothing's outside of his control, but at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. As we live in a time that's, that's, that's already here, but not yet fully here. That is, that, that Jesus has come and inaugurated and started something. His, his reign and his kingdom are here now, but not fully. That is, Jesus won the victory, but we're still awaiting the consummation, the final end of it all. So we live in what we call kind of an overlap of times, where, where Jesus has come and he started the things that he said he was going to start and he said that he was going to fulfill, and we're awaiting the final installment of that, the final fulfillment of those things. We are waiting when, when he says... We're waiting until everything will be put in subjection to you. All your enemies will be your footstool, is what he says in chapter 1 from Psalm 110. That's where we're at. The enemy is in check, if you're into chess. The enemy is in check 
awaiting checkmate. They're only making a few vain and hopeless moves as we await checkmate in the end. The mortal blow has been dealt. The snake has been struck. The wound is going to finally and fully do it in, but we don't know the time when that is completely done. Judgment hangs over those who reject Jesus right now because he is reigning right now. But there's in this earth tremendous, still a tremendous amount of pain, still a tremendous amount of suffering, still trials of various kinds, and so it doesn't look like everything's in subjection. And I think that in this age, our sight can deceive us. It can look like the enemy is winning or gaining ground on all that is good and sacred. It looks like sometimes like evil is overwhelming, that it is going to gain the victory. Our sight can be like the blind man in Mark chapter 8, the blind man from Bethsaida. Do you remember this man? Jesus spits on the ground, he covers his eyes and tells him to open them and look and see. And he says, what do you see? I see people, but they look like trees walking. You guys don't look like trees walking. Right? People don't look like that. His sight wasn't fully there yet. It was blurry. And like this man, our sight can be unclear because we still need Jesus to do more. We still need to see more clearly. We need Jesus to help us see and to understand. In other words, we need faith. We need to see through eyes of faith. Jesus is reigning and our sight can, can trick us into thinking that he isn't. He's in control, but it's blurry to us. This is the already not yet time we live in. It is full of pain. It is full of trials. It is full of suffering. It's full of all of those things. Evil is everywhere all the time. It seems to never sleep. And in order to navigate this time and to live well during this time, to live faithfully unto the Lord, we have to live by faith, not by sight. And so what we're going to need is this continual side adjustment from Jesus. I can't see it rightly. Would you please clear this up? Showing us by faith what we can't see by sight. That Jesus is perfectly orchestrating all things according to the counsel of his will. That Jesus is at the helm of the cosmos and all things are moving to his appointed end that he will see too. He isn't sweating any outcome. And he himself is our peace now. He has already granted the victory. Salvation is accomplished. Assurance is ours through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. But those things cannot be taken hold of by sight. Only by faith are they realized. And so while we don't yet see all things in subjection to him now, we are still meant to see, as verse 9 says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. There's this hymn, this song, that says, When I was sinking down, sinking down, sinking down, when I was sinking down, O my soul, when I was sinking down beneath God's righteous frown, what did Christ do? Christ laid aside his crown for my soul. Jesus loves his people enough to lay down his crown because we're under God's righteous frown, under his righteous wrath and condemnation. And Jesus lays aside his crown that he might come after us to love us enough to become one of us, to pursue us in love, made lower than the angels that he created to worship him for a while to come after us. 
This is how Philippians puts it in Philippians chapter 2. It says in verse 5, that have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of what he was, has done, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Jesus comes taking the form of a servant. Though he was God of gods, he takes the form of a servant. He humbles himself. He even submits himself to die, saying, no one takes my life. I willingly lay it down on my own behalf for for the sake of others. And this leads to his exaltation. And this is the same idea in Hebrews chapter 2, that Jesus' incarnation, taking on flesh, his death and his resurrection, don't actually lower him in the end, but crown him above all being placed temporarily lower than the angel shows how far he's willing to go to restore to redeem and it shows his greatness he was willing to go so far as to death and it says because of his death he is crowned with glory and honor because of his death now it's not because of death in general everybody dies that doesn't necessarily or specifically make us great at all Makes us normal. People die. Everyone dies. We all die. So his death in and of itself didn't make him great. It was the death of Jesus. Who died matters again. Jesus died. Jesus is the one who died. Because he is not just a man. Fully man, fully God. God died. God dies. And so the song continues, to God and to the Lamb, I will sing, I will sing. While millions join the theme, I will sing. Jesus is crowned with glory and honor. Millions are joining the theme of singing out to God because of his death, because of the victory that he gained for us in his death and resurrection. Millions through his death are in his wake singing this theme. God took on flesh and he willingly, not begrudgingly, suffered and died for others. And Hebrews finishes this portion by saying that he was crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering and death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus tasted death for everyone. Now it's important to remember what death is. Paul tells us in Romans, the wages of sin is death. Death is what you deserve, is what, is you, what you earn, is what you should get because of sin. Jesus created all things, and he created all things how? He created them good. And yet, who brought sin into this place? It wasn't God. Man rejected God, rebelled against God. Man brought sin into God's good creation. In other words, the wages of sin, death, should only and always ever fall upon sinners, which is us. And yet, we have Jesus who is tasting death for everyone. That is, God became man, he lived perfectly, and the wages of sin is death, but he had no sin. And so why is he tasting death for everyone when he is without sin? There should be no death for him. 
He should live forever. And yet he tasted death in his crucifixion. Now I think taste is the right word. I don't want to argue with the writers of Scripture. But for us, it seems a little strange. You could take a taste, and to us it's almost like a sip. And then you pass it along. It doesn't seem like much. And so to our ears, it seems to fall short. What it means when he tasted death is that he fully experienced it for us. His death instead was, was not just his death. It was a substitutionary death, a sacrificial death, a blood payment for the wages of others. Why? Hebrews says, by the grace of God, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. By the grace of God. Grace, by definition, is something that no one can qualify for in any way, with any means, for any actions. Right? Grace has to be granted. And if it's not granted to us on behalf of, if someone else doesn't grant it to us, then it's not grace. If we have earned it, then we're not talking about grace anymore. If we can get it by some sort of means, then it's not grace anymore. But this says, by the grace of God, something that we can't earn. We can't have any sort of means to get there. God has to grant it to us, and it's only one way. We can't get it from him in any way. He has to grant it. And this is what separates our God from any other God. He can grant grace because he is gracious. That's just who he is. That's the overflow of his character and nature. And so God creates and redeems. In fact, in his creation, in his redemption, he creates out of his grace. In other words, he doesn't create to gain servants. He doesn't create because he needs love, because he needs someone to do his bidding. He creates because he is glorious, because he is gracious, because he is loving, and he desires to share that with creation. He does the same thing in redemption. He doesn't redeem us because he needs more numbers. He doesn't need more love. He doesn't need anything at all. He redeems us because he loves us because that's who he is. God is love. He is gracious. And out of the overflow of his character and his nature, of his fullness in the Godhead, he wants us. And so he graciously comes after us, willing to suffer, taste death, so that every one of us might taste victory. He says this in 1 Peter 3. This is why he dies. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might what? Bring us to God. That's what he's doing. He wants to bring us to God. He wants reconciliation with God. That's the goal. We brought sin in. We deserve punishment. We deserve death. That's the wages for our life. Jesus enters in, not deserving any wages of sin, and drinks our wages all the way down to the bottom, turning the cup over, tasting death for us, that we might taste victory by coming to God. Amen. No angel has done that. No other name under heaven can bring us to God. There is no other name by which men can be saved but the name of Jesus. He is greater, greater than angels, greater than all. And in our present age, that is full of darkness. Some's in me, some's in you, and it is all around. Full of suffering and death and evil that doesn't cease. We need our trust stimulated. We need worship stimulated by the knowledge of the greatness of God. And Jesus puts his greatness on display by taking on flesh. 
Jesus puts his greatness on display by showing us what man was intended to be by perfectly representing and resembling God on this earth. Jesus puts his greatness on display by suffering, even suffering the death of crucifixion. Jesus puts his greatness on display by dying, tasting death on behalf of everyone that we might know God. There is no one like him. And we're called to respond to his greatness by by trusting and worshiping. We see his greatness and respond and trust and worship. God has given us this picture of the knowledge of the greatness of himself in Jesus. Have we seen it? Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful that you've given us your word that we might know you that we might see your greatness. Ah, you've shown us so much, even in a few short verses, of how great you are. That you, God of gods, would take on flesh and pursue us in love, that we might be reconciled to yourself. God, I pray that you would help that greatness impact us. That it would stimulate trust in you in a world of darkness. We need you to stimulate our faith, our trust in you that we might live unto your glory. God, we need you to stimulate worship. We are so inclined to worship created things over the creator, and yet when we gaze at who you are and what you have done, how dare we worship anything else? God, now in our hearts, would you stir that up, that we might turn together corporately in worship to you, resolving to trust in you more fully than we did when we came in. God, that would bring you honor and glory, and that's what we're after. That's what you're after. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.